Philippians 3, 7 through 11. Each week I go to all this trying to find it, and then I go, oh, my marker was right there. Do it every week. Um, Philippians 3, chapter 7. It's chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. And here's what God's word says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Please be seated. Let's bow our heads in prayer for one more moment and ask God's holy help. Lord, thank you for your word. Our brains are engaged. Your Holy Spirit is present. We thank you for that. Help us now, Lord. Give us what we need uh, in terms of uh, whatever combination of knowledge and encouragement and conviction and resolve, whatever it is that, that you do in the lives of those of us who you love, who know you. Help us as we interact through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a friend who was very, very good at his job. And he was very, very well compensated for the very good job that he did. And he was a generous man. His wife was generous. Did I mention he was very well compensated? He was. And then, like happens in countries and cultures such as ours and economic things, things took a turn. Uh, not as bad as maybe they're getting ready to in our country right now, um, but they were bad. Back in the days of the bursting of the housing bubble and every domino that was connected to that and every company and everything and financial uh, sectors roiled, as uh, they, they, they say, and, and all of that thing. And all of a sudden, as the markets and the trouble in the markets and the uncertainty metastasized, his company began laying people off. And because he was very good at his job and dependable, he was one of the last to go. But finally it came down, I think, to him and the boss's nephew. And we know how that happens probably 99% of the time. Um, and, and he was gone. And it was different, and it was hard, and a challenge. And I would meet with him for a cup of coffee just to pray and and pray about job possibilities that were coming and potentially coming. And it was a hard adjustment to make. Um, 
because he was good. He was generous, but they, they had money, and they could spend it, and that was not a thought. One time he said something I haven't forgotten. He's 15 years later. He said, I walked downstairs this morning to get my Bible to come to this meeting, and I saw all the toys, stepped on them, kicked them out of the side, and tripped over them. He said, when our kids were little, going through the store checkout lines, if they asked for some little toy, it was easier just to give in and get them the toy. Just give them a toy. Not worth the fight. He said, toys, toys, toys. He said, probably shouldn't have done that anyway, but we did like our kids to be happy. He said, but this morning, tripping over and stepping on those toys and looking at them all, being out of a job, and looking at those toys, he said, anymore, those aren't toys. Those are. And he used a biblical word that Paul used in this text, which the ESV, the genteel translations of the ESV, if you've got a New American Standard Bible and even a New King James Version, it says rubbish. My friend didn't say those aren't toys anymore, those are rubbish. He didn't say what the NIV translates it as. He didn't say uh, those are, aren't toys anymore, those are garbage. But that's what he meant. But he used the proper. Yeah, he didn't use the same word, but the King James gets it right of all translations. Also, the 1599 uh, Geneva Bible gets it right when it says, I consider all those things but dung. And he used a Modern equivalent, those aren't toys, those are dung. He was revolted because those symbolized other things. And we all can look at that. Um, You go, and if you've got a house full of stuff and somebody's got to clean that, I mean, I remember my friend Mike, Mike Taylor said this. His parents died out in Kansas. He wanted the pictures. But he said, I just don't know know what to do with all their trash. I'm thinking, well, it wasn't trash to them. One man's trash is another man's treasure, et cetera, et cetera. But he said, uh, it's not what I mean by trash, but I just mean mean nobody wants it. It's just there, those little objects. But uh, uh, talking to to, to Ron about a relative, and and, and Ron's laughing, and Ron says, I know where you're going with this. What did they do? back the dumpster up because the people lived upstairs and they just said, get the dumpster as close to the window as you can. Um, We get to a point in life and and I guess what we're heading to in this sermon is I want us to remember and think about the things that we think are so important are really in the long run, if you put on if you said, I'm going to put on Bible spectacles and I'm going to look at it from God's point of view, the things that I used to value and treasure so highly are nothing. Uh, last week we talked about some of these things. Paul wasn't talking about physical objects. Paul was talking about all that righteousness that he had. Some of it by birth. He won the lottery of birth in his culture. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, he was circumcised on the eighth day. He was all of these things, and he says, that used to be so valuable. I looked at it like gold. 
and now I see it as what it is. Fool's gold. And that's where we're at in the text. And it's a proper translation. I mean, it would shock us. And I'm not saying you go out and use those words. We, we would get our mouth washed out with soap as kids, even if we used uh, uh, the words because we would use them out of context. And, you know, there, were, there, are, there are blasphemy words, and then there's what they used to call in Iowa barnyard talk. We weren't even allowed to do the barnyard talk. The blasphemy words, um, that, was, uh, that, was, that was super serious. We couldn't even uh, use our, our modern equivalent of dung in a frivolous way. Paul's not using it frivolously. That wasn't part of his language. It's just he was trying to think of the most repulsive thing to demonstrate what that righteousness was and all that secular status was compared to seeing who God is and what life is about. Barnyard talk. You can imagine Paul writing this letter, mouthing the words. All that stuff, he said, to Timothy or Titus or Onesimus. Listen, don't get fooled by all that stuff. He had seen it coming even in the church. Some preach Christ, he said, out of uh, envy. Some preach Christ to elevate themselves. He knew that the very sin that was there in his culture where he became a Pharisee working his way to the top, can easily come into this church that he loved, that he was planting, the, the Philippian church. And I guess I could say could easily come in to this church, to a denomination, to uh, everything. Be careful. All of that stuff is rubbish, trash, garbage. Side note here. Old John Chrysostom got it right in the translation, but here's where he went a little off. And this is why when you look back at some of the church fathers, you say, uh, they're such good, but they were, they were working, they were learning from each other, they were developing. Chrysostom translated it properly as dung, but he said, hey, that's good for fertilizer, and that's good for this and that. It's just not as good as the other stuff. Uh, that's not what Paul had in mind, I don't think, was I look at it as good for fertilizer. He said, no, that's what it is, repulsive, compared. Wasn't gain at all, it was lost. I was losing. I was a loser. People died because I was using those things to persecute them. I cast the vote to have them executed, men and women, I was an early persecutor of the church, he says, and I look at that now, and my heart wretches with what I did. That's why the longer he went, he could call himself as uh, the chief of sinners. It's like the man who said on the final play of the close football game, I picked up the fumble. It just kind of bounced into my hands and I ran like I was trained to do. And the roar of the crowd kept accelerating and everybody was cheering and I was running. And finally, even the opposition, I guess I was running so fast they gave up on me. And I went into the end zone and I dove across the line in an imaginary way and I got up and I spiked the ball and I celebrated. And then I realized 
I was in the opposite end zone, and I just lost the game for my team. It's like the guy saying, I climbed to the top of the ladder. I fought everybody off, and then the ladder was leaned up against the wrong wall, and it led to nowhere. And he said, all that stuff is rubbish and garbage. All of my career achievement was nothing. It was not just nothing, it was loss. So Paul is saying, my conversion changed my perspective. And Paul was converted. Sometimes uh, we might be um, inclined to think Paul's conversion was a little different than ours. Because I bet if I took a show of hands and I said, how many of you were walking down the road with a group of friends, no matter where you were going, and all of a sudden a blinding light and a noise that knocked them down, but the voice that you heard audibly spoke the gospel to you and you changed, I bet, I bet nobody would say that was their conversion experience. And so we think Paul's was a little different. But what you see here is the elements of conversion, no matter how God wants to do it, the elements of conversion, uh, it's just like converting. It's like the Transformers. They were one thing and then they transformed into another thing. Like there was a bunch of movies about those kinds of things, I guess. They used to be toys when I was a kid. Uh, you've been converted. You've been changed. A stark language brought from death unto life. How big of a change can you have than that? Any, anything bigger? No. And the Bible talks about conversion. And Paul's circumstances, how God chose to save him, might have been that way. No different than yours if you were a Christian. You can point to a time when you were this and now you're that because of the work of the Holy Spirit that brought about repentance and gave you faith. That's all of us. And boy, we need to revisit our conversions and then we need to do what Paul immediately did with this church as he's talking about it. He said, the only thing that saves us is our theology. And you've got a mini theology lesson right here. Right here. You've got justification in the next verse. You've got sanctification in the next verse. And you've got glorification in the next verse. The one element that uh, is, is not in this, in this conversion picture would be the doctrine of adoption, but that's throughout his, his letters otherwise. But let's look. So three points today. One, two, three. Justification, sanctification, glorification. This is the path that we are all on if we are Christians. Justification. Verse 9. He says, I, I, I look at what I saw before. That's garbage. That's rubbish. That's all that stuff. He says, I'm going to gain Christ. And then 9. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's justification. I think I can only remember one time ever in preaching a sermon that I've said, take your hymnals. <laughs> 
because it's more than just a hymnal in the back. And if anybody wants to take one of these hymnals home, uh, I've got a whole stack of extras back there. But I would like you, if it, you, you can just listen, and that's okay. If that's what you want to do, that's fine too. But in the back of your hymnal, uh, there is a Westminster Confession of Faith. There's also a shorter catechism. So I'm, I'm going to read and look at page 871 in the back, this shorter catechism. And let's just, so, so that we're very clear, I didn't want to leave anything out of justification and what justification is. So page 871, question 33. Again, I've never, I don't, I don't do this often, but this is important for us to see. What's Paul talking about? Justification is this. What is justification? <laughs> I was looking at this and, you know, I had to memorize all these back in, back when the days when my mind was a steel trap in seminary, I had to memorize. I couldn't even graduate without this shorter catechism memorized. <laughs> now that it's kind of a rusty old trap, a lot of it slipped away. And so I've got to look at it. Here's justification. Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. An act of God's free grace. If it's not free, it's not grace, but they have to say God's free grace. What is grace compared to mercy, for instance? Mercy is not giving us what we deserve, i.e. hell. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve, eternity with him in heaven. Old James Kennedy in the Evangelism Explosion uh, came up with the acronym that I've shared with you, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's an act of God's free grace. It comes from God, wherein he pardons all our sins, the big sins and the little sins. However, we or our culture or our spouse or somebody defines big and little. And so we kind of put them in, I think the Catholic Church puts them into categories of mortal and venal sins. We have our little categories and all that. Well, you know what? This doesn't categorize. This says all. All sins. Past, present, and future. God's not taken by surprise. You say, well, I I was converted. I, I came out of a life of and you name your thing, and God saved me, and I, I was just driven. Maybe you say I was driven to my knees, or but at least in my heart, I humbled myself. I was shattered when I saw who I was in relation to God, and I, I, I asked for forgiveness of sins, and God justified me. I was given salvation. You were given salvation, not probation. You were saved. And it was a saved from past sins, saved from your present sins, from your future sins. Jesus knew exactly whatever it is you were confessing this morning that happened this week that you said, I hate to even admit it, God, but forgive me. That that was part of God's justification. You are forgiven. God didn't keep a document of them just in case just in case he might need that to hold over your head, to get you back. Hey, I still have the goods on you. Um, 
Gone is gone. Far as east is from the west means what it says in the Bible. Thinking back to the man who said to me, when I rightly sinned against him, rightly sinned against uh, God's anointed, (laughs) I, I, I was guilty. And I was guilty. And I was convicted, not just because I was caught. The Holy Spirit was doing a work of forgiveness. And I go in and I apologize to him. And I, I ask for forgiveness. And he says, I will forgive you, but I will never forget. And I'll be watching you. And I'm like, oh, man. I'm glad it's not like that with God. I'm glad it's just a man and not God. Uh, God doesn't do that. And then 20 years later, I'm reflecting back on it and going, Am I more like God in my forgiveness or am I more like that guy in my forgiveness, even if I don't verbalize it? And and can I pray with a straight face, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and apply it to myself? Uh, God, thankfully, is God and God justifies and God forgives. And you have been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Get over it. God did. God forgave. Jesus died on the cross and paid the awful penalty for it, and you've been forgiven. The words in the confession, in in the question, and accepts us as righteous in his sight. And God looks at you, his daughter, and says, isn't she perfect? She's perfect. She's Mary Poppins. She's practically perfect in every way. She's perfect. He regards you as righteous. You couldn't even slip past the door of heaven if he didn't. It's not like a parent whose kid brings them breakfast in bed or draws them a picture and they've kind of botched it up because they're little kids and their hands don't form and and, and all that. And you say, oh, what a perfect picture. Well, it is a perfect picture because it's given from love from your kid and you're not lying. But... um, It's not the Mona Lisa. God looks at you and he doesn't say, well, you're perfect because you're trying so hard. No, righteously, legally, forensically, you are righteous. God regards you as perfect. You are accepted as righteous in his sight. And Paul looked at that and he looked at the garbage, at the refuse, at the rubbish he was trying to pass off before as perfect. And he goes, that was so far from the mark, that's all that is. That's, that's, that's the smelly old garbage bags that are in my garage with flies swirling around them and rotten banana peels and grapefruit whatevers. And that's all that junk. That is rubbish. That is dung, was his word. And now I'm righteous. Uh, shorter catechism, the next phrase, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. The old guys would call it alien righteousness. Alien righteousness. A righteousness that was outside. You look at an alien movie, whether that's E.T. or Alien or whatever, and you say, all of the alien movies are something from outside, from a different galaxy, and what scares us and all that sometimes is because we don't know. Or they're good aliens, like E.T. was. Uh, But... uh, It's alien righteousness. It's outside of ourselves. That's the word alien. That's what it means. It's not like um, you watch a movie, Aliens versus Zombies. Zombies are mutated humans. Aliens are outside. 
alien righteousness, outside righteousness. You couldn't come up with righteousness. You can't make yourself righteous. All our righteous actions are like filthy rags, it says in Isaiah. Um, The righteousness that you have when you're justified is a righteousness that comes from God. Paul said it this way in in this verse. He said, um, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. It's received by faith alone. It's received, not earned. You reach out and you take that faith that God has given you. You can't help it. Uh, That's a gift. Sometimes at the table I pray and I say, God, thank you for the gifts you've given us of repentance and faith. Theologically, they call those the the twin sisters. It's like two sides of the same coin. You can't get saved with only um, repentance and no faith. You can't get saved with only faith and no repentance. It's it's all a gift from God uh, that he gives that to you. It's an outside. So Paul says, first of all, that stuff, nothing. My conversion is the justification that came to me from outside of me through Christ. And then he moves on to the next step, sanctification. Verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He's talking about how we live then as a result of it. Uh, The two are connected. Uh, Somebody said we are saved by faith alone, but not the faith that is alone. And one of those gifts that God gives you when God justifies you is God gives you sanctification. Um, Question number 35. Two questions down, one page over. On page 872. What is sanctification, asks the Shorter Catechism. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Uh, there's Notice a thread there. Justification, work of God's free grace. Sanctification, work of God's free grace. That's, that's the source. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. This practical sanctification he's talking about here where God gives you the grace and our lives are affected. We do find ourselves. It's not even a matter hardly of like striving for it, although we covered this a couple weeks ago with work out your salvation, fear and trembling. A lot of us just find ourselves being more righteous. We love God. We've been saved by God. The Holy Spirit's in us. And you know, like, boy, I never would have done that before. I, I would have done that. And for whatever reason, that doesn't appeal to me so much. <laughs> I remember, I, oh, I was so embarrassed one time. Oh, Dad, Mom, you got to watch this movie. This is the best movie. And, and boy, we, we went out, and these are the days where you'd go out. And I think I watched it the first time, the days you had to rent the uh, the player and the movies, and you just like binge all weekend, on, on, and then you take the machine back and you take the stuff back. And boy, I remember just watching this and just being thrilled by this movie. And Dad just had to see it. And I grew up in a home that um, I think I think eventually Dad would give one grace, one one bad word. He could kind of, but the second one, boy, we're flipping that thing off. And this movie was just filled with this. But because I had watched it when I didn't care. 
And I just remember the plot. And watching it with Dad there would be like watching it with Jesus there with me. And I was like, oh, man. Oh. Um, but we find ourselves the things that excited us so much. What was I so excited about with those things, all those things? What thrilled me so much? And we catch ourselves as we live as Christians, the things that were interesting before aren't so much as we walk with God. There's a sanctification. Uh, what's, what's the language say? The language says this. We are, um, uh, whereby we are renewed. It's God's grace. We are renewed in the whole man after God's image, and we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. This is not what saves us. It's not saving faith, but it is connected to the saving faith that God gives us. And there is a increasing in some ways. So here's an in-game highlight, an instant application. In a couple minutes, we'll get to applications of the whole text. But right here, I just want to remind us while we're here, the process is the same for all Christians. If you're my brother or sister in Christ, you have been converted. You have been justified. The same legal transaction that happened for me when Jesus died on the cross and said, to tell us died is finished, and he was accepted as a perfect sacrifice, is the same thing that happened to you. I'm appealing to this. We're all appealing to the same thing. And in the sanctification process, that's coming from the same source, and that's applying to all of us. And I want to give myself all sorts of excuses when I fall short. I want to wear that T-shirt they used to wear in the 70s. Please be patient. God isn't finished with me yet. I have to remember, and you have to remember with me and with each other, with your spouses, with your kids that are Christians, uh, all of that, um, the same principle is at work in their life. Please be patient. God isn't finished with them yet. And you can give the same grace. Don't be a hypocrite and allow things in your life because you understand your life and you know why, and yet be so hard-nosed on all these people when they're out of line. Boy, that's a, that, if you're going to be dogmatic, be consistent. I had to tell one person that was in our life and in our, in our, was there present all the time, I said, we all need a hypocrisy hunter. And so I'm glad you're around in our lives to look at the hypocrisy uh, and point it out to us because we need that. Just be consistent with yourself. All right? <laughs> um, and this is, this is for us. We're all in this process of justification and sanctification and God's working on us and we can make allowances. One of the most effective sermons I heard in that legalistic college that Paula and I met at. Some guy said this. He says, I can tell you you're a hypocrite. You know why you're a hypocrite? Because you allow in your friends what you don't allow in other people. I was like, ooh, (laughs) I do. Sanctification. God saved us and God loves us. And so let's just be joyful as we walk through the process together. It's all about joy and rejoicing. We're coming to that to the end. Um, Finally, he goes, and and we'll we'll go a little speedier here. Glorification, verse 11. That by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Um, I think more about death now than I uh, have in a, 
ever in my life, I think. Did a lot of funerals back at the old church. The senior pastor's son had died tragically and he was almost allergic to funerals and I did every funeral that was there. And the uh, it was a large church and so there were a lot of people loosely connected but they weren't really involved and, and uh, yet everybody needed a, they wanted a church funeral and so because it was a large church. And so we, I did funerals for people that were two or three steps from, the, from church. The uh, florist said to me one time, we know whenever it's a funeral at this church, it's probably going to be something tragic and not good. Well, I remembered, I said, I want to do this. I was riding with the funeral director, and we had a funeral not at the church building, but it was through the church. And we were driving to take the woman's ashes out to the vault. And I said, uh, let me just hold them on my lap. And I held that woman whose funeral, I, I, don't, I didn't know her. I knew her from her friends, and I, and I preached a gospel message, and I, I wanted to give them comfort and honor. And I said, but she was my age, died of an overdose, deliberate. And I said, I want to hold, this, this, is, this is a person here. She listened to the same songs I listened to growing up. She, she, she grew up in the same area. She would have heard the, the same run home after school. She probably watched Batman and Green Hornet and Gilligan's Island like I did. She was, she was my generation, and there she goes. Let's put her in there. And you think about life and death, and there is an appointment that we all have. And Paul said, I'm excited about the appointment that I have because of justification and, glor- and, and sanctification, and what's connected to that then is glorification. That by any means possible I may attain resurrection from the dead. Question number 37 in our catechism. What benefits do believers, not what benefits do people or everyone who dies, but what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves till the resurrection. Then what happens? Next questions. Two questions on glorification. Next one. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at the resurrection? At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God to all eternity. Um, here's something you could do if, you, if, you, if you're kind of interested in this, and you're going, wow, that's, that's um, don't memorize all, how many, 117 questions there are, I think, 107. Memorize the four we looked at this morning about your life and where you're at in relation to Christ. This is the path you are on, Christian. Justification, sanctification, headed to glorification. Another way to say that. I am saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. And you are safe and secure, and you're on this path. Who knows what the world's going to do? Blow itself up. Maybe. Who knows? All these fix-it people, boy, they're going to fix it. I ain't seen any fixing going on. Um, But you're on a path, and you are fine, and you are safe, and you are secure, no matter what happens, Christian.
So in addition to the one application I gave earlier, just three uh, as we wrap this up and head to the table. One, this is a shot of perspective during these crazy days. Eternity past and eternity present, but here we are right now. There's an eternity past way behind us. There's an eternity present way ahead of us. Here we are. Jesus was present. He was there in eternity past. Jesus as God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's there from the beginning. Before the beginning, there's no beginning. God is there. And Jesus is the one we will worship in eternity future. But Jesus came into the present when he came. And he entered. And he did what he did on behalf of all the people he came to save. And understand now that he is still present with you through his Holy Spirit. And so you just happen to live in what humans call 2022. This is when, it's when God chose for you to be alive at whatever age you are, whatever sex you are, whatever background you have, whatever God chose that for you, and here you are. But you are headed into eternity future. I wrote this. Uh, I'll read it. This is your moment in time, and yet it's not about you. At least it's not exclusively about you, though you are included. You have something to do. You are somebody. Uh, And you as a Christian, in this sanctification process, uh, Jesus is increasing in your life, and you are decreasing. You are learning obedience, and you get to live right now uh, where you are as a Christian. You get to be a Christian. What a privilege. What a joy. You get to be a Christian, and you get to live like a Christian lives. How does a Christian live? Well, let's read our Bibles and see. These are scary times. The world is shifting. Maybe there will be a food shortage. I wish I hadn't even looked at it. Somebody said, read these hundred things that have happened. <laughs> They're talking about all these food plants blowing up and cattle dying and this and that and supply chains. They're saying food shortage, food shortage. And, and people are reading that. And it's a scary thing if you want to look at it. Uh, maybe it's not going to happen. All my life, somebody's been at the switch, somebody's been doing something, so maybe somebody's going to be there just doing it. I don't know. But these can be scary times. Maybe the totalitarianism that we're hearing about as all the world comes together is something that will adversely affect you. Maybe it's going to happen here. Uh, it's happened in other places in the world where Christians are locked up for their faith killed for their faith. It's happened in other places. Maybe it won't happen here. Maybe it will. You know what? Cheerful heart. Trust in God. We're on the path. You're on the path of justification, sanctification, glorification. So whatever happens, God's the boss. The Bible calls it momentary light affliction because you are righteous in God's eyes. You have a legal, clean record and God is teaching you and and helping you and walking with you as you learn how to live, and you're headed for heaven. So you can be cheerful come what may and joyous come what may. You can have the perspective. That's, That's your first application as we close. How do you acquire and maintain the proper perspective to make it in this? I wrote, this is funny, 
I kept writing, how do you to make it in this topsy-turvy world? And the, the spell check kept wanting to make it say tipsy world. And I'm like, well, maybe that's even better than topsy-turvy. Maybe it is a little tipsy. Maybe it's, it's lost its balance, and then maybe that's, the, maybe that's better than topsy-turvy. But how do you do that? Paul said in the example from this part of, of Scripture, your theology. You need your theology. You need that. You don't need wishful thinking. You need truth, and you need to say, what does the Bible say? And I'm lining up with that. Not I want to make it try to line up with what I want to try and push through. And as you have that theology working, as you explore Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did, as you think about the ramifications of justification, sanctification, glorification, then what do you do? You do what Paul did, and you, and you can't help it. You write six pages, and the words joy and rejoicing are just flooded throughout it. We're prone to wonder. We used to say, stay alert, and you won't get hurt. Keep your eyes on the road, your hands on the wheel. You're walking this path, and you're living for Christ. And boy, if you're the captain of the ship whether that's your family or, or the church where you're at, if you're, if you're the driver of the car, uh, you go into the ditch and you've got a carload of people, uh, that's, a, that's a tougher deal. There's some responsibility. You better just keep your eyes on the road. You, might, you better just say, Jesus Christ, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to understand what the Bible says. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to not try and, and, and flip sanctification with justification, but I'm going I'm to come to the cross and I'm going to say nothing I bring everything I trust in you, repentance and faith, then I'm going to live for Christ, I'm going to put sanctification where it belongs, and there's heaven on the other side, and that's where I'm going. Eyes on the road, hands on the wheel, and don't text and drive. Um, Listen. Don't know where we're headed. What's this church, what's Christ the shepherd's family is going to do? What would we do if it's really, really, really good times? Will we stop doing what the Bible wants us to do because we're just enjoying our good times? What if it's really, really bad times? Well, what is a church supposed to do? How are the components of a church, the Christians that God saved, how are we supposed to live and what do we do? Ask ourselves that and respond appropriately. Right now, as we get ready to go to the table, one thing, one thing you do... I said, that's why regular church attendance is critical. You come here and you're reminded of the path. You go to church, you're reminded of uh, if all you get out of it is, uh, is saying the, the Nicene Creed, uh, that's not all you get. That's a, that's a beautiful thing. If that's the moment in time, then do that. But you come to church, you hear about God, you sing about God, you confess, and, and you're constantly, if the church is doing its job, it's constantly talking about Jesus Christ, and it's constantly bringing us back on the path together of what matters. And the rest of it, Paul said, is what? Rubbish. Dung. That's why we come to church. That's why we come to the table. And that's where we're at. Have your perspective changed, recalibrated by the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this Lord's table that we're about to receive from. 
Thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you that there's always a Bible there for us to read and you're always there when we pray. Help us to do that and love that. Lord, help us to enjoy every good and perfect gift that you've given us, every thing that's beautiful and and fun and enjoyable and, and all of those things. We thank you for that. We thank you that we can enjoy them in their context because they're gifts from you. Thank you that we get to be a church together in Danbury. Thank you that we're connected to the larger church of Christians everywhere. Thank you for all of these things, and we thank you that Jesus is our Savior. Thank you for justification, sanctification, and future glorification. In Jesus' name, amen.